0: Hello and welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hi there, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. I'm Kim. How are you this morning, Mark? Great, Kim. Great. Always great to talk wine. I know, and we're kicking it off with a real like geek alert kind of article that was really fun. I love it when we run across different types of articles about wine and from different parts of the web and the world. And uh, this was a science article from Ars Technica about the science behind why we swirl our wine. And I thought this was absolutely fascinating.
1: Yeah, and when you see science after wine... You know it's geeky, right, We we know we're in trouble. Uh, So, yeah, Kim, we always talk about before you taste your wine to swirl it. And being the wine geeks that we are, every time we do an event, people are looking at us funny and we always joke that we swirl all our beverages, not just (laughs) wine. But let's tell the listeners why you should swirl and why scientifically they prove this is good for wine. Right,
0: this article is great because it was called Swirling Your Wine is Not Pretentious, It's Just Good Physics. Um, And they actually have a technical term associated with swirling wine, which is called, they call it orbital shaking instead of swirling. But what the reason behind why we do what we do for the the, the swirling of the wine around the glass is to aerate it. So kind of like putting it in in a decanter, it releases those aromatic compounds that make wine smell good and give it its its aromatic personality. And um, in this article, they were talking about the different ways that you can swirl and testing out either how fast or how slow or for how much and how much aromatic compound that releases. I like the orbital shaking
1: <laughs> orbital shaking. Swirling, right? There's <laughs> got to be some abbreviation we can use for this. But yeah, mixing or swirling uh, oxygen in the alcohol, it, it enhances the flavor. And every time we do an event, Kim, we pre-pour most of the time because you have to set up a room. So I kind of recommend to our listeners, when you take a glass of wine, even at a restaurant when it's sitting there, always move it around a little bit. It'll smell it before you swirl it and then move it around and then smell it again and you will notice a difference. 90% yeah. of the time you will notice a difference.
0: I've definitely taken this page from your book and I had never done this before in my classes where I have people not touch their wine. You know, we, we sort of look at the color a little bit and see how clear it is but not have them swirl it first but if it's been sitting there for you know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes and it hasn't moved around, have the student take a sniff of the wine and then swirl it and then sniff it again. And this wasn't something that I had ever had anybody do, but I learned from you that it really makes a big difference. And it's powerful, I think, for people to smell it before it has had that air contact and that that oxygen moving around there and then afterwards. And you really do get a different impression of the wine.
1: Yeah, so Kim, they mentioned you, you were saying orbital shaking and they said, what are the three scientific factors that affect the aroma by this orbital shaking or swirling of the glass. And the, the first one I thought was great because they mentioned the level of wine that's poured into the glass. Mm-hmm. And I think the good example of this is if you go to a restaurant, they're usually giving you this huge size glass and the pour looks very small. right? And everybody's thinking they're getting ripped off maybe, but there there's a whole scientific thing behind why they're giving you a big glass.
0: And the amounts that they mentioned were actually, I thought, particularly small. It was only a few ounces. But that makes a big difference with the amount of air contact that then gets into the beverage. Did they they mention, what, like a three-ounce pour? It was or like two it? or three ounces, so, yeah. It yeah. was pretty small.
1: I mean, I've heard that a lot where restaurants are only supposed to pour two to three ounces. In, right.
0: But uh, then come back. And, you know, if especially if you're drinking a whole bottle with your table, you know, you might only get a couple of ounces at the beginning in that glass. That doesn't mean that you're not going to eventually, hopefully, finish the bottle. But for that, you know, kind of getting the most aroma bang for your buck, having a smaller amount in your glass seems to be worthwhile
1: yeah and you don't want it, no matter what the size of the glass you use, you don't want to fill it all the way to the top because you can't move it around and swirl it and aerate it so the bigger the size and the less volume obviously it makes great sense you get a bigger swirl mm-hmm. so more aeration into the wine and the second one was also related to the glass saying the diameter or the width of the glass makes a difference
0: and i know that i when i've read articles about you know what shape of a wine glass should you be using you know there's a lot of debate about uh, should every grape variety have its own type of glass, what what size glass, what shape glass. But the general consensus is that a, a wine glass with a bigger bowl, what we consider to be a traditional glass for Burgundy, where it's got a pretty wide mouth, but also a pretty wide bowl as well, is the best type of glass to be drinking any kind of wine out of. And this scientific research does sort of highlight that that, that is the case.
1: Well, it makes sense that if it's a wider bowl, you're getting more or I guess expansion of mm-hmm. the swirl. Yeah,
0: more exposure there.
1: And I've always, you know, Redell, the famous glass maker for wine, they have all these seminars on the on the glasses and how each variety, like you said, Kim, should have its specific glass. But to me, it's always just get a nice big wide bowl for any wine. Mm-hmm. Swirling it the most you can is, is always good. And they didn't touch on it here because it's not related to the swirl, but the glass to me also is the, the rim of the glass. Yeah, that's important. How it folds important. in or folds out. Yep. So.
0: If you have a thin rim, you you're going to be able to taste it a little bit better.
1: And the last factor they said that affects the swirling had to do with more geeky scientific stuff as far as force. And the interesting thing I thought about it was there's force swirling, but there's also force pushing the wine back down to keep it in the glass, which helps the swirl. In the right. Area.
0: I had never considered that either. You know, My my sciencey thinking tends to go more along the lines of biology and earth science and a little bit less on the physics side of things. So these were some ideas for me to think about too. And for me, I think the force is not with me when I swirl because it all,
1: right it all comes all <laughs> that's over me. Awesome. Right when I swirl, it's going I know. everywhere. We do
0: tend to get a little messy, and it's
1: always at the worst times. It's like you're showing people, okay, this is how you swirl, and you're holding it, and bam, like then they're looking at you like you that's like when it out we when we're
0: opening up a bottle of, sh- of champagne or prosecco or something, and we're like, oh, you know, this isn't gonna explode everywhere, and then it goes everywhere. <laughs> when I, yeah, when I open a bottle, oh, me too, sometimes.
1: But they did have a great video on the site that showed. Actually, Actually, slow-mo of the swirl. Mm -hmm. And related to this, Kim, I want to talk to you about there was a lot in the past about aerating wine using a blender. So (sighs) frothing the wine.
0: Have you ever tried that technique? No. I've never put wine in a blender, except maybe to make, I don't know, some sort of frozen pitcher drink.
1: Well, they say that is the best way to aerate. They call it frothing or super uh, Mm. aeration or super hyper decanting, something like that. I've never
0: put wine in a blender, but you know, I'm willing to try it.
1: You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine and we are your hosts Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone and we are exploring all things wine with you today. If you'd like to find out more about our show you can follow us on iTunes at The Wonderful World of Wine. Next we have a fun topic to talk about that was in Wine Enthusiast Magazine and it's all about a guide to finding wines for birth years. And Kim, we just had this discussion recently because you were looking for a 2010 vintage for your son.
0: Right. I'm right in the middle of trying to put away some wines for my kids. So my, my kids are a little bit older. They're not babies now. But I've been trying over the years to put aside some wines from their their birth years so that when they turn 21, we'll have some fun things to drink. This article concentrated more on the l- most recent couple of vintages. Um, so they went back to 2015. So 2015, 2016, 2017. And now uh, we have the 2018 vintages that have just been harvested and are either fermenting or are in an aging period right now. Yes. Yeah, so
1: let- Let's just tell our listeners the vintage year is on the bottle. So you were saying the last three years is what they talked about in this article. So if your child was born in 2017, you buy a 2017 vintage that's an age-worthy wine and you'd put it down for a future event. Right. And I also like in the past, we we talked about wedding Mm. wines, but I, I love this idea for anniversaries. And it's something when you get married, it's probably not too easy to find the one for that year because it's probably not out yet. Right. But for anniversaries, I think this is also a great idea.
0: I, I agree. And um, and that to your point of when the event is going on, you probably don't have the ability to put your hands on a bottle from that vintage. And that is what makes, I think, a little bit of a difficulty for people who are looking to buy wines to give as a gift for a new baby is those wines aren't going to be available for a couple of years. So this isn't the kind of gift that you can give as a new baby gift or a christening gift or a naming day gift. You know, you're, you're looking for for this to give a couple of years later to the parents and be like hey hold on to this for the next 19-20 years. So this is more forward thinking. Maybe give it to the kid on their second or third birthday or their fifth birthday or their tenth birthday because some of these better wines do need to spend significant time at the winery either in barrel or in bottle before they are even released. So like in my case I'm looking for 2008s and 2010s and there are some things that were just released a couple of years ago. So Better bottles of port are held back for a while. Better bottles of champagne are held back for a while. And then sometimes it takes a couple of years before we start to see good Rioja or Bordeaux or those things that are going to last for 20 to 30 years. Yeah.
1: And I also like to tell people to look for not just a standard size bottle, but a double size or even bigger size bottles, especially for anniversaries. If you have a party and you find a certain vintage and people come that they could sign it and you could put it away. Same thing with, with birth year wines, double size on the 21st birthday you could write you know happy 21st birthday Mm -hmm. on it better presentation but it is difficult and you have to we've talked many times about what wines to buy to put down you definitely want to search those and get advice on you know which ones will age 20 years or 10 years so So a couple
0: of good rules of thumb really are to you know you want to pick vintages that were particularly good years and that does take a little bit of research you can't just necessarily throw out oh this year was a is a good vintage this year is a good vintage because they are different in different places and it does take a little bit of research and you also want to pick more of those tried and true standards that have a track record of producing wines that do age a long time so one of the points that was made in this article was to avoid trendy wines and I think that that that's a good rule of thumb a wine that is very hot and trendy right now may not be so in 20 years it might be you know there are things that we do see as coming along and be coming like the new great classic but that's not going to happen happen all the time so for something that you are going to you know be looking at consuming 20 years down the line you probably want to consider something that you're pretty sure is going to hold up for that amount of time so we're talking about things like Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne a couple of good things from Spain be it Priorat or Rioja and then some of the I guess more prestigious ones from Italy like Barolo or um, Brunello di Montalcino things like that
1: yeah great advice and earlier you also mentioned ports. Which I think is a great thing to look for. Matter of fact, my brother and sister-in-law are having a 30th anniversary, and I found the Colheita Port 1989. Nice. And not, not like super expensive. You can find things like that, vintage ports, probably a little bit more. But Port is also a great thing to look for because they're vintage years. Right.
0: And they're declared vintage years, and they're meant to age. Right. They last a really good long time. So that's one of the wonderful things about Port. It's not to everyone's style because it is higher in alcohol, and it's also got some sort sweetness to it too so it is more of a dessert wine or you know a sipping with cheese or nuts or like after a meal kind of a wine but if you know that you've got people who do like port it makes a fantastic gift and for bang for your buck it really can't be beat You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find out more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com and more about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. Little update that we got from some trending wine uh, information that we are following out of Northern Italy. It's about sparkling wine, always one of my favorite topics. And this has to do with new styles of sparkling wine that are coming out of Northern Italy. I know, Mark, we've been talking a little bit about pink Prosecco, which we're still waiting to hear if that's going to be a go or not and this one is about Prosecco style and traditional sparkling wines made from a grape variety that we don't usually see in northern Italy funny how you always find the
1: sparkling find wine these articles trends, about but the, it's always in the news so this article was focusing on a red grape from Sicily that's called Nero Diavola and it is being done by Zonin which is a big family producer in Italy
0: right they're a big Prosecco producer
1: and they're finding that uh, this grape grape is perfect for sparkling wine, and they, they've they been testing it for some years now. What did you think about the grape in general, Kim, about Norfolk? I
0: think this is probably a pretty smart move because you do see some Niro Davila produced from cooler growing conditions that does mimic Pinot Noir a little bit. And Pinot Noir is one of the classic grape varieties that is used for not only champagne, but other quality sparkling wines all over the world. So I, I think that this was a, a pretty smart move and for them to go out and search for a grape variety that that in their cooler climate does produce wines that are different than in the warmer growing conditions that we're used to seeing it. So when we see Nero from Sicily, it's it's a whole lot hotter in Sicily than it is up in northern Italy. So it tends to produce a little bit more gutsy kind of deep reds. But in cooler growing conditions, it is a little more similar to Pinot. So I can see how this would make some... Really interesting and fantastic sparkling wine. The
1: article was in DrinkBusiness.com, and they have always these big headlines. And the headline was Zonin discovers a native Italian grape great for sparkling. And then they said, other than Pinot Noir, what is a good red Italian grape? And what did you think the grape was, Kim? Before you went, did you? Did I, you thought gonna, I thought like they were they gonna. I thought they were gonna come out
0: with this this grape variety that I never heard of before. Yeah, like, that's oh, what wow. I was thinking too. Because there are so many grape varieties in Italy. You know, there are, there are thousands of varietal wines in Italy or blends of wines from grapes that we don't really see outside of Italy's borders. So I was thinking there was gonna be this like grape that's only grown in like one tiny section of the country and they're reviving us. No, it's Nero d'Avola. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh Nero, okay. <laughs> but then once
1: I saw the grape and then the first thing they said after mentioning the grape was this is the most produced or most grown grape of Sicily, right? Yeah. So then I'm thinking then you know. well, <laughs> you know, it does make sense now. So let's try something else to do with it because we have so much of it. Yeah. So is it really, I'm, then I'm thinking, is this really the best wine for sparkling red or did they just want to find a way to make it the mm, best? Way? That's
0: an interesting twist on it. Maybe, maybe.
1: And then I'm thinking, okay, they mentioned more than two years ago, they've had a line out that they were aging 36 months. And then I say, well, let me see what's in Massachusetts. So I went on my page that I can see what products come into the state. And I and I searched, Sicily sparkling wines with the grape Nuro and I found one that's imported into the state and it's a blend of uh, 60% neuro and 40% Frappato. Frappato. Frapato. Yeah. I love Frappato. So only one. So it's not like, I mean- Is that a this, sparkling wine or is that a, a still fully, wine? It's a sparkling that's a wine sparkling. Okay. and it's aged 18 months, I believe. So half the time that Zonin is experimenting with and mm-hmm. it's like a $20 retail, but there's only one. So to me, I don't think the distributors in the state of Massachusetts are. Uh, picking up on this as a big trend right now and I've never had anybody ask for a sparkling of this you know made from this grape so I mean we can watch it and the other interesting I'd thing I'd be willing to try it yeah oh yeah you, you try everything <laughs> <sparkling>. <laughs> that's right so the other thing that was n- not really mentioned this I would but drink business mentioned it a lot before was the the history with Zonin in Italy I don't know have you followed any of this Kim no. with the producer well the the family business the son is actually running the winery and they're all over Italy, and they're sourcing this from Sicily. But the dad was involved in some sort of Italian uh, Ponzi scheme. So th- at one time, they were putting out you know, Zonin and all their brands to get people to protest the brands. Huh. Um, and a lot of you know our Italian friend, Ciro, he was putting out a lot of articles recently in Italian. I couldn't really figure out what it was, but he would tell me you know a lot of people in Italy just like uh what was the guy's name bernie madoff there Mate, bernie madoff yeah. yeah just like that in u.s in italy he's that guy over oh there. boy so their brand is hurt in italy but it's still you yeah. know, produced here a lot
0: so. so that would be i would think very vital for them to be finding or growing the market over here to offset yeah. the problems that they're having yeah in so italy. And, and the
1: italians are not supporting them, but they're international brands so, nice little bit I mean, of research trending there. it trying i just because i have heard it in the past yeah and, and there to see it's still being promoted in drink business is mostly a uk publication so it seems like the the threshold of people protest and it must be over mm. because to get in a publication like this and maybe that's why they're looking at different things too to get find this stuff before anybody else yeah. to get the name back in good standing
0: well we will keep an eye on this for you
1: You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you today. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to follow past episodes of our show, find us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Just search The Wonderful World of Wine. The next topic we'd like to talk about with you today was in vinepair.com, and it's eight-questions about orange wine, but you're too embarrassed to ask them. And first, Kim, let's talk to our listeners about what is orange wine?
0: Right. This is sort of the the new style that's been trending for a couple of years now. But I don't think that a lot of wine consumers really have any experience with these wines yet. They are a little funky. This article describes them as mischievous, which I think is a is a, a great descriptive term. They're, they're a little bit harder to get your hands on. They're not super inexpensive. But what they are is winemakers reverting back to a little bit more of a traditional hands-off approach to winemaking. And the color orange doesn't come from the fact that there are oranges in there. These are still made from grapes. But because these are white wines that are made in a little bit more of a style of a red wine. So there's skin contact. And with the extra oxygenation, you get more of a like a, a richer, more orangey color to the wine. So it, it really does describe more the color of the wine than anything having to do with its aroma or its flavor or its ingredient. And like a lot of topics in the wine world,
1: this was, you know, they were saying this is an obscure wine making method that's now trending again. Right. So, and we've seen that many times with a lot of different things. Things cycle around. And come back in popularity. And two of the the first two questions they were saying about orange wine you just answered is is it made from oranges? It's it's not. What's so unusual? What's made? How it's made? And you said that it's made like a red wine instead of a white wine. The next thing they said is what does it taste like? Have you've had orange wines, Kim?
0: I have not too many, but it you know it's a pretty broad category because orange wines can be these older, funkier styles of wines made in like central. Or Eastern Europe that are made with grape varieties that are very local to the area that they're made. They might be made in big clay pots, they might be buried underground for a couple of years, they might be made with like very, very minimal intervention on the part of the winemaker, or they could be like the some of the lovely sparkling wines that I had in the finger lakes that are skin contact, sparkling, but very again, very little intervention on the part of the winemaker, so that they make wines that are this matte batch might be of this style this batch might be of a different style but you kind of get what you get with these because they're a little bit more natural and the winemaker has less i don't say less oversight but they kind of let the wine make itself a little bit more so it's it's a little bit more of a question mark as far as what the final style of the wine is going to be yeah
1: and it all comes down to how do they make this grape skins the white grape skins contact the juice they, like you said they store it in clay pots they're burying it underground mm-hmm. the only varietal I've ever had as an orange style wine was a Pinot Grigio and the Pinot Grigio grape is actually all different skin colors people think it's a it's the same white grape as Chardonnay but it does have different colors of, yeah. of skin so you can get a nice orange hue from a Pinot Grigio yeah I've
0: seen the orangey orange there's some that are almost like a rosé like they're an orangey pinkish kind of a color they're actually quite pretty I've seen um, some Trebianos which is a, a grape native to Italy and Spain that are made this way. And what happens is because grape skins not only give different flavors to the wine, but they also give tannins, which is what gives red wines that structure and that sort of fuzzy feeling on your tongue. So when white wine is exposed to the skins as well, you get a little bit of those tannins too. So it's not as pronounced as in a red grape. It's it's a little bit more subtle. But this article described them as like like tea tannins. So when you drink tea, tea. black tea has tannins and sometimes you feel that stronger depending on how strong or how light you like your tea but i I liked that analogy that this was this is more of like like a tea kind of a thing
1: yeah so some tannins they mentioned more stone fruits like a peach profile for me i got more of heavier weight Mm -hmm. or more texture which would make sense because of the skin contact Uh, but i thought the fruit profile was the same but just a little bit more body to the wine so interesting stuff if you've never tried it next they asked is orange wine related to blue wine and we talked about blue i wine. got a
0: good chuckle out of this <laughs> one
1: we've talked about blue wine in the past and the, in the big difference is orange wine is a true natural color from the fermentation uh blue wine there's additives to right. turn it blue yeah
0: they're, they're kind of the opposite ends of the of the spectrum frankly because blue wine does have to have their colors might be derived from natural sources or from grape extract skin whatever but yeah no the the, no pretty pretty different
1: that was it was funny no coloring i I could see people asking that oh sure i
0: I mean i always tell people there are no dumb wine questions and especially with a topic like this that is rather obscure and a and a pretty new thing for a lot of people. I love, I love hearing these kinds of questions.
1: And next they said, what temperature would you serve an orange wine at?
0: This is a great question because we get the serving temperature question all the time. And I think it's smart for a wine like this to serve it somewhere temperature-wise between where you would serve a white and where you would serve a red. Now, often we serve our red wines here in the States a little bit warmer than they should be. So like our room temperature kind of in the high 60s is a little warm so i usually advise people to put your reds in the fridge for a little while like 15 20 minutes before you drink them just to bring them down to like low 60s temperature so your orange wines should be consumed kind of 55 degrees or so a little bit cooler than you would an ordinary red wine but not certainly not refrigerator cold and warmer than you would say serve a sparkling wine or a pinot grigio or something else white
1: yeah not cold cool 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 yeah cool next they ask can you pair orange wines with food and i like when this food things come up, Kim, because it brings out the foodie and you can explain to me what some of these cultures they were saying (laughs) to pair it
0: with. So I I know (laughs) that I've run across a couple of articles saying that orange wines are actually difficult to pair with food. And I think a lot of that has to do with some of them have sort of these funky flavors, but I think also because there's quite the variety out there in different kinds of orange wine. So it's it's a little bit harder to lump them together in one category when you want to talk about pairing the wines and the foods. That being said, they are are stronger flavored wines, which I think require a little bit more of an assertive flavor in the food. Like you wouldn't want to pair them with something too light because the wines themselves would overwhelm the food. So what were some of the uh, examples of dishes that they gave or cuisines that they gave there, Mark?
1: I think they just said cultures, like cultures from Asia Minor, the Balkans. Mm -hmm. It didn't really, I don't think, mentioned a dish more than a region, which I like that advice because, for instance, if you had an orange wine, from Italy, you'd find out what are they eating in that region. We talk about this all the time. They're not making that wine there because, I mean, they're consuming it with their food. So I would base it all on find out what that region is eating and pair it with that. Yeah.
0: And especially, I mean, we, we do see a lot of these orange wines coming out of Eastern European countries. So, you know, think about the cuisines of Hungary and Poland and countries in the center of Europe where you have kind of more hearty meat dishes, a lot of vegetables, stews, things along those lines and those would be the kinds of food that you would want to pair these wines with because they do have much more structure. I would lean more towards what you would traditionally pair red wines with to pair these wines with. The next question they
1: asked about orange wines is, is this a new invention? And we touched on it a little earlier. It's been around for a long time and they said actually over 6,000 years ago.
0: So, you know, wine has been made by mankind for, I think the earliest archaeological evidence for wine is somewhere between Seven and 8,000 years ago. So these are probably closer to those original styles of wine than anything else that we have here today. So it's like a taste of the past.
1: The last question they asked him about orange wines is, is it the same as skin contact wine, which is kind of a strange, we kind of touched about earlier about how it's made. It does yeah. contact the skins, but it's just an orange color instead of red uh, color from red skin grapes. Right. Um,
0: and I mean, skin contact wines, you could, all reds are skin contact wines and rosés are as well. So uh, yes, orange wines are skin contact wines, but not all skin contact wines are orange wines, I guess you can say. So you
1: always leave us with more <laughs> questions, right? So that's, I mean, I That's what I do. They were all
0: good questions
1: and it's, it's something that's trending right now in the wine world I think I only stock one and I don't get people asking people kind of question why there's an orange pinot grigio on the mm-hmm, shelf mm-hmm. so I mean, it means take some education but I mean we'll always talk about it right? but it's
0: nice that there's you know that there are always new things out there so if you are curious and you want to taste what we're talking about uh, go out and grab yourself a bottle of orange wine talk to your local retailer and uh, and see what new and unusual things are out there in the the wonderful world of wine thank you for listening to the wonderful world of wine today we've been your hosts Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay you can find us on Facebook at the wonderful world of wine and check out our older episodes on iTunes at the wonderful world of wine thank you wine, wine, wine.